Those touch tones are your cue to uh, give us a call and uh, enter into a conversation. We want to hear from you on Straight Talk here on Real Presence Live. Father James Gross joined by Father Jason Leffer from our Grand Forks studios. And the number to call is 877-795-0122. Now, as it happens, there are several other questions that have been casually submitted um, that uh, Father Leffer is going to, uh, time permitting, uh, try to raise. But we love to hear from you. Also, if you want to leave your question uh, off air or uh, on our Facebook page for Real Presence Radio, please do that as well, and we'd love to be able to take it up. Um, so uh, um, a couple of different things that I wanted to mention just right off the bat here. One of them is a sort of a sad note of something that happened uh, a few weeks ago here. There was a young lady who, as it happens, as Father Leffer and I were discussing this, both of us had interviewed while we had been solo hosting this program a woman from Minneapolis by the name of Jennifer Messing. Jen Messing. Um, She passed away from uh, breast cancer at uh, the age of 50. She was only about three months older than than I am and uh, was diagnosed in 2021 and fought that brave battle. And uh, so there is a a, a kind of a retrospective about her life and, and, and what was it that made her um, noteworthy. Well, she entered into, I think, a really um, a noble embracing of the single life rather than just kind of, you know, leftovers or what a default might have, you know, a default for other sorts of things in terms of giving of herself generously to uh, the Lord and to others as well. And so um, one of the things that she did was with regard to um, promoting theology of the body, she also uh, formed uh, organizations that led retreats for young people of uh, camping, hiking, various things like that. Um, uh, they called the Frasati Society um, uh, through the inspiration of Blessed Pier Giorgio Frasati, an early 20th century Italian who shared his love of God and the outdoors with friends. And she wrote uh, some years back, I see Frasati as one of my all-time heroes because he was both devoted to Jesus and in the Eucharist and a practical joker an outdoorsman and politically active, appreciative of culture, and a tireless servant to the poor. So it was a great privilege for both Father Leffer and me to be able to visit with her. Uh, When we had that opportunity, I'd like to extend my um, prayers and heartfelt condolences to her family members and friends. Eternal rest grant unto her, O Lord. Let perpetual light shine upon her. May her soul and the souls of all the faithfully parted through the mercy of God rest in peace. Amen. No, Father Gross, as you go through that uh, very beautiful obituary uh, reminding our listeners of who she was and great she did. I couldn't help but hear traces of like Michelle Dupont yes. in, in her story. And Michelle was a strong devotee of uh, Giorgio Prasadi as well, kind of a thing, whatever. And I'm, I'm seeing like, also I'm getting a little nervous, like, well, we've got to be careful if you're faithful to Giorgio. He seems to take him young, you know, so we've got to, the, uh, <laughs> but no, yeah. but th- I mean, the, uh, her passion, Michelle's passion, even, um, uh, I, I don't know if you followed all Seek Conference that happened here the last couple of weeks and, you know, 20,000 plus college students. Focus, the Fellowship of Catholic University and, and, Students, and here, annual you, conference you know, in Indi- uh, St. Louis. Yeah, and Michelle was showing up everywhere. Uh, of course, I mean, she was a, a former missionary and all this, but but still, it, uh, again, became very prominent and uh, she's been declared venerable. No, no. Servant of God. Servant of God. And next step would be venerable from the Diocese of Fargo. And 
She's near and dear our heart. And, right. And a native of the Diocese of Bismarck from uh, Glenn Olin, who had been employed with the Diocese of Bismarck uh, shortly before but, her death. Uh, but also, like, uh, you know, Jen fits in that same category. And it yes. just reminds us that, that, that there are saints amongst us in the, in the body of Christ here now, uh, living. God is alive. He continues to call. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Another thing just to mention quickly here, um, uh, and we do have a question that's pending, but I wanted to bring this up quickly here. Since the last time we were on the air, Father, it happened to be the one-year anniversary of the calling of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI uh, to eternal life. And there are a couple of very touching retrospectives that I had come across mentioning his role and things like that. Um, one uh, from the National Catholic Register from Michael Warsaw says in part, If you were fortunate enough to have had a loving grandfather in your life, you know what a special blessing that is. Even when we lose them as we inevitably must, we treasure their memory and, their leg- and the legacy they left us. Their words and their example sometimes may have seemed outdated to us, yet their wisdom was so often exactly what we needed to hear. That is why they continue to shape us for the rest of our lives. In a sense, that's the kind of relationship many of us Catholics had with Pope Emeritus Benedict Sixteenth, and I think a lot of people can resonate with that. Um, Benedict's style and words, he goes on, are even more apropos today than they were so many Christmases ago, the troubling events of the past year, our first without him, including the wars in Israel and Ukraine, political dysfunction and the rise of militant woke ideology here in America, or the polarization within our own church, especially over its consistent teachings on sexual morality, have served to deepen a sense of disorientation that many struggle with today. It sometimes seems as if the world no longer speaks a language we understand. Regrettably, some in our church determined to distort Pope Francis's calls for openness and dialogue into a cry for revolution have added to the fog of confusion by adopting a strange sociological church speak that few of the faithful can fathom. He goes on to say that Pope Benedict's words often had a way of making the vast mystery of the God-man understandable, always presenting Jesus in his fullness from his simple birth to his suffering, death, and resurrection. One more quick note about this. Jesuit Father Federico Lombardi, who was the former director of the Holy See Press Office during much of uh, Benedict's time, um, spoke about particularly how um, he was uh, continuing to give of himself as a scholar. He, Father Lombardi says, quote, Even back then I was fascinated by his ability to explain the most difficult theological concepts in a very clear and convincing language adapted to today's sensibility and culture, and this gift is only developed year after year. He goes on to say, For me it is mind-blowing that a pope with all his commitments, his concerns, the very difficult things to deal with, not only wants to, but also manages in the course of his pontificate to write such a work, the Trilogy of Jesus of Nazareth, so extensive and in-depth to present the face of Jesus with unprecedented erudition and concreteness, without abstract intellectualism, but in such a way that he can be encountered by all people today. I thought that was just very marvelously put, and so we continue to remember that wonderful legacy that that, an unlikely person at the time that he was elected has left to the church. And and, uh, so that anniversary just happened here. The end, yeah, New Year's Eve, I believe. It it was a year ago, 
And also along the lines too, uh, like uh, he started by mentioning the uh, if you had this grandfatherly figure filled with wisdom, but uh, Cardinal Robert Seurat as well, he released a new book uh, through Ignatius Press. It just came out on the anniversary of the one year anniversary, and it's a tribute to Benedict the Sixteenth. And he, um, it's called "He Gave Us So Much," and I actually uh, got a copy of it. I'm reading okay. it; just incredibly inspiring. And basically, what you just said, he says the exact same thing about. How the, this this man takes this profound everything, puts it in such simple terms that people can really receive and be comforted and nurtured by, mm-hmm. nourished by. Right, uh, right. When the presumption was that because of his academic renown that he would always be on this level way above me, and why should I even try to read what he's written? You know, and so quite, it, it's wor- quite the contrary. It's worth a read. He gave us so much by Robert Cardinal Seurat. Thank you for Chris. that. Yep. For that recommendation, we do have a question that was submitted from uh, by Carrie from Bismarck, and um, uh, she is wondering: um, do, do we have her on the line, or is it just a submitted question here? I'll, I'll go ahead and read the question: Who was the other disciple with Andrew? when they followed Christ after his baptism. Um, In other words, when John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God, there's one, Andrew is named, and primarily because he then tells his brother, Simon Peter, the other one is not. I don't think that there's anything in the scripture that identifies that other disciple. Is there some sort of apocryphal legend, maybe? Okay, so so the, the, the correct answer is, we don't know exactly. Okay, that I mean that if you want to get it's it, always so, good to be correct, right? <laughs> right I mean, that, so, I mean it, like you say, scripture does yeah, not verify yeah. it. How, however, there, there's there's a number of uh, things that we we can look at here that that give us a, a clue as to what might be going on here. So, especially the type of literature at the time when the gospel is composed, there there are literary techniques that were going on that was very common at that time, where somebody who's writing uh, something like say like the the gospel here, whatever. Um, they they will they'll they'll actually include them the author who's writing it will actually include themselves in the story without ever using their, their reference sure. to first person mm-hmm. myself I was there whatever but they have these literally techniques of of indicating I was the one there or the other disciple mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. so in in the gospel it's always, always right it's always referencing to. Um, the beloved disciple, the disciple the whom Jesus loved. The That's one, the most obvious. And, and I it's think one who, who's he, the one who shall remain unnamed, but we all know who he is. Kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. So, um, the the number one belief is that that disciple is John, mm. the 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 beloved apostle. Okay, um, there are others who um, you know the first five who show up there. We, we we've got so the two, and and then we again the reason for John is because then when Andrew tells Peter. It, then it says, then James appears as well. So, yeah. that, well, how would James know unless John right. was kind of a thing? Mm-hmm. But, but there's a there's another thought that it might be Philip actually, yeah. who who is that apostle? So, mm-hmm. there's different theories of those out there. Right. Uh, if if you're going to make me um, shed blood over this one, I'd say it's it's probably John. But then again, how these literary techniques work, the idea is that you incorporate yourself into the story. Yes. And that you are actually that other disciple. You're that actually that other apostle, and that you're supposed to follow through. You're supposed to hear the word of John the Baptist and conversion, and you're supposed to experience John pointing to 
right. the Lamb of God. And Rather than just a vicarious... And you're, uh, you're yeah. supposed to hear Jesus asking you, what are you seeking for? And, yeah. and then you're supposed to be the one who, who encounters face-to-face, the Word incarnate, mm-hmm. and then you yourself are the one who's supposed to go and take this message and invite your brother, your sister. We should also mention that this coming Sunday, we're beginning the reading from uh, the Gospel of Mark at the Sundays uh, during this uh, ordinary time and most of the upcoming liturgical year. And what the synoptics do is they're identifying a moment of encounter, which may not have been the very first time that uh, the disciples had heard of or heard from Jesus. But when he comes up to James and John and, and Andrew and Simon, very dramatically, calls them to follow him and they hop out of the boat and leave their family and their nets and all the rest of it. And, and one of the things I, I just want to, I want to draw this to people's attention, our listeners at this moment. So we're, we're in this kind of special season between where we say liturgically the, the Christmas season has ended and then we're looking for Lent is about to begin here. But there is, there's actually, um, traditionally it's, it's 40 days of Christmas tide that goes up till February 2nd. So like if you were to go to Rome right now, if you walked into Rome or any place in Rome, any church in Rome or St. Peter's Square, they they have their their Christmas scenes are all still up, the manger's there, the Christmas trees are up there, the Christmas decorations are still there. They'll be there till February 2nd. And the reason I'm bringing this up is that this Christmas tide season, because Father Gross just mentioned the, the gospel is coming this weekend. So if you remember last weekend, this one coming up. The idea here spiritually, that the church invites us to to be hearing these words through the the mystery of the incarnation of that uh, the, the the invisible God you cannot see has become incarnate, and and so as Christians, right, we have the, the incarnation and we have the Paschal mystery, right. These are our two defining things, and so this is a season up until February second, which is the presentation of the Christ child in the temple, right. Um, that th- these forty days we're supposed to be hearing these words through that lens, the template, the of. God being made man and dwelling amongst us, what does this mean? What does it signify? And so this is, this week we're going to hear Jesus say, like, like he said last Sunday, he's going to say it again, come follow me, right? It's this personal invitation into this, this divine mystery of the, the God-man, mm-hmm. truly God, truly man. Right, right. And of course, the topic of conversion is such a central one this coming Sunday with the way the people of Nineveh responded to the prophet Jonah and the message embodied in the third luminous mystery of the proclamation of the kingdom the uh, fulfillment of you know as uh, of the kingdom is at hand repent and believe in the good news we do have a question that was submitted here if we can just touch on this quickly here i think we can take care of this in relatively short order uh, anonymously uh, now father gross <laughs> Neither one of you have the ability to say do anything in short order. But go ahead. Wishful thinking, we, perhaps? We, we can try. Let's okay. <laughs> Hello, fathers. My nephew is about to be baptized in a few weeks, so if you can s- please say a prayer for Hudson for me, definitely we will keep him in prayer and invite our listeners to also do that as well. Also, this got me thinking about baptism as a sacrament. I know Christian denominations perform baptisms differently. What are the requirements for baptism to be considered valid? Thank you. Well, thank you very much for the question. It boils down to the categories that we traditionally call matter and form, the material element being used, and the form, the verbal formula, but not just what you are saying, um, taken very literally from chapter 28 of the Gospel of Matthew, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. But the question boils down to what the particular denomination believes about God. Do they truly believe in a trinity of persons, or are they not 
uh, holding to that. So that's where it becomes kind of thorny. If you have some of these more um, uh, modern uh, denominations that will look by outward appearances as though they're doing things very much the same as we are, you know, the LDS, the Mormons, or the um, uh, Seventh-day Adventists, you know, various other groups like that, those are the areas where one would rightfully question whether or not what they perform as baptism is valid. And it's not a matter of being conceded, it's about upholding the, the truth of what we have received in, what, in the teachings about the identity of God and whether or not a particular other group is in line with that or if they have departed from it. So, so I'll repeat back what I heard you say. It sounds like there's three things that are essential. So if I was to baptize in the name of Christ that would not be sufficient because it needs to be I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Or if I was to baptize in the name of the, the Redeemer, the sanctifier, sanctifier, Creator, yeah. Redeemer, that would not be valid. It would be uh, if I was to use uh, oil. So for example, there are some denominations mm. who Pentecostal. What if you don't have water and all you have is orange juice? <laughs> or or because because the nature of scripture talks yes. about chismation. So there's right. a number of denominations. Anointing. They yeah. actually use oil and instead of water. We'd say, well, okay, that's not that's not the right matter in the right form. And then the third one, which you, you're talking about, is the right intention. There needs yeah. to be the right intention. So mm-hmm. so you need the right form, the right words, the right matter, and then right intention. And now, Father Gross, um, do I have to be a bishop, or do I have to be a priest, or do I have to be a Christian to do no. this? In, in case of necessity, uh, case of emergency, anyone can baptize, even if he or she is not themselves a believer, as long as they are doing what the church intends. Pastorally speaking, what I would do if I discovered that somebody was baptized and there wasn't a chance to get a priest or a chaplain there to do that, and the child pulls through, let's say, um, I would invite the family to supply the ceremony so that we would do the other things that uh, pertain to baptism um, without the actual baptism so that they don't feel like they're second-class citizens in the shadows. You know, it's a way for the community to celebrate Okay, and one more to, to complete this, because I know there's some listeners right now and I know they have really good intentions but it let's say I'm a grandmother or grandfather and my children are not doing a good job of raising their children in the faith and mm-hmm. and they they drop off um, my three grandchildren for a weekend yeah. and I know that none of them have been baptized and and my maybe my son and his wife are not practicing Catholics or Christians mm-hmm. and so out of concern for the salvation of my three grandchildren I I say hey kids come on let's go take a bath here let's go to the bathtub and I'm gonna baptize you in the Father Son and Holy Spirit is that a good thing to do Father Gross? That is an improper thing to do because according to canon law my responsibility as a pastor is that whom I baptize will have that there will be a well-founded hope that that child uh, person will be raised in the faith so that's kind of putting the cart before the horse ideally you're going to be working with the people who are the primary you know influences in their life in order to try to bring about uh, a conversion of heart within them not saying that we want to be cruel toward you know children who through no fault of their own are in this position you may not remember it it's one of my favorite episodes of all in the family where Archie Bunker takes his grandson Joey down to the church to bat to do a a clandestine baptism because as he said his his parents are dopey atheists you know and so the good uh, <laughs> polish grandfather that he is he's and then, yeah and then afterwards he says now god i hope i done this right because when i get home and they find out what i done they're gonna kill me so <laughs> 
you know, and 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 so, but just to kind of complete the thought on that, the the more mature thing is to appeal to the ones that God has put in authority over those children, which is your son or daughter and son-in-law and daughter-in-law, and from your heart and with with all love and conviction speak mm-hmm. to them and implore them and you know set a stage environment and mm-hmm. and then the the appropriate time would be if 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 that doesn't work and falls through well when when those children are actually of age that you can appeal to them as as adults you can always uh, proclaim the gospel to them and invite them that way I, anyway the, the church is very sensitive about this yeah. the, what's the difference between proselytization and actual evangelization and sacramental grace right right right. now there's a a two-part question uh, and so i think what i'm going to do is i'm going to ask you father leffer to weigh in primarily on the second part i can speak to the first part uh which was submitted anonymously from sioux falls uh the first part i'll just mention quickly did saint paul ever meet jesus and so let's look at the time frame of things as best as we can tell paul's conversion took place three to six years after the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord into heaven. So when he sees the Lord on his way to Damascus, he sees him, truly sees him in a vision, but is not uh, in the same rhythm of life as the original 12 apostles who were called. So um, when you use that word apostle, it doesn't only refer to uh, those who were initially called by Jesus. It was, for example, when Matthias is, is chosen by Lot as one, one, uh, to, as the one to replace Judas Iscariot, he had to have seen the risen Lord Jesus to be a witness of the resurrection. And so similarly, we attribute the title apostle to St. Paul for that same reason. You know, so that that is the means by which he truly, you know, saw and beheld him in that vision. So it's a yes and no answer. He, he Paul says, I'm a super apostle, meaning not that he's greater than the other apostles, but he's a, bu- like, he wore a cape and a yeah, exactly. He had, he had an SA on his, uh, his chest. And <laughs> yeah. Th- no, but he, he. It was outside of ordinary means in which he encountered the Lord. Extraordinary, a super right. means above or beyond the mm-hmm. normal. The other apostles met him face to face, and Paul met him through extraordinary means. Right. Right. So you have that category that would also. Uh, technically speaking, apply to Barnabas. So when we celebrate his feast day, he's regarded as apostle for a similar reason. You know, not in terms of the public ministry of Jesus historically, but of having seen the risen Lord. Again, that title apostle means sent, sent by the Lord for specific yeah, mission. That so. Greek from the Greek word for like ambassador or envoy. And then, how did they decide his letters belong in the New Testament? Right, so, um, so, so w- what happens there, this comes to the question of the canonicity of the sacred scripture, what, what's in the Bible. And so, w- what's interesting about this question is, because so you'll, you'll notice that Catholics and Protestants have different books in the Bible, right? And how do we come about that? Well, what's interesting about this, the one thing the Catholics and Protestants agree on, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is the letters of Paul that right. are in the Bible. We don't disagree on any of those. And so, how, how do they, how is it that they made it into the canon of scripture meaning that they're inspired by the holy spirit and that there's no error in them so well one because uh paul was an apostle of christ um he he wrote them or disciples of his own hand wrote them they were given to the early churches that were um uh, created by paul mm-hmm. and and so some of them you can tell out early well, yeah, this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Look, it's the teaching, everything that's going on here before. But then there's other ones like uh, his, his letter about the slave, Onesimus, right? The yeah, Philemon. Philemon, you know, it, you're like, why, why is this in here? You know, well, mm-hmm. 
because it was written by Paul and it was written in his lifetime be, uh, before he died mm -hmm. and the church had possession of these letters and so that there was 27 existing mm -hmm. right no no uh, am I getting there's 27 in the whole New Testament yes but Paul's letter 13 I think there we go thank yeah, you 13 yeah. with 13 letters of Paul that were existence that we had possession uh, at the time when we determined mm -hmm. the or the canon of sacred scripture which is right. about the year 400 roughly yeah but within uh, again those 13 letters we're pretty sure that some of those for example might be three or four letters combined in one so there's there's all kinds of scholarly debates how many right but it, it we definitely beyond a shadow of a doubt these were either written directly by paul's hand or somebody who paul had right for him let's also remember a couple of things if we transport ourselves if you will to the late first century you know where christians happen to be you have the lack of modern means of communication so some communities are aware of some of these documents at, at times when others are not and then you also have the climate of persecution in the roman empire which was really suppressing the ability for christians to promulgate what they had as openly as they would want to so it wasn't a matter of sloth or negligence you know it's like why were these christians dragging their feet before deciding definitively what is in the canon of the new testament there were other factors and so at like work. paul even he gave direct in, in his, in, within his letters share these letters with the other communities in other words pass them around mm -hmm. um and then the great tragedy you just mentioned the the library of alexandria yeah. that was that was destroyed it was burned to the ground it contained i mean think of the treasures that were destroyed in in the destruction of that library I yeah. mean, all of these writings and everything, every, and probably more ones that we don't even know mm -hmm. about were right. in that One library. of the first things that we as seminary students learned about when we were studying uh, the New Testament is how you have all of these textual variants because of all of these manuscripts, which might be like third or fourth hand and may not include some parts that others have. Well, if there had been a retained, more original source of things, such as the Great Library in Alexandria, Egypt, that might have cleared up up a lot of this but as it is it makes it all the more difficult you know when it comes to deciphering things and, and, and having said that it, yeah. isn't it amazing how much we do have that we can yes. prove we can demonstrate from the beginning this is from the time of Christ until now we have this physical mm -hmm. spiritual but also physical yep connection right and, and 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 the love that god has for his people in this dual authorship so to speak so you have the human author and you have the holy spirit working through them inspiring them so that we have this great treasury of the word and christ speaking to us through the word you know and not only just in individual study but in the liturgy in the liturgy of the word as well so that uh, puts a bow on our straight talk segment here and thanks to those who have submitted questions um, we might uh, later on in the show be able to touch on very briefly one or two additional I'm, things I'm that we brought we were, up we were able to do it in such concise words and just very briefly touch all the answers to all those yeah, questions. I, I think we I think we made a lot of laps around the track <laughs> didn't we yes, so we, <laughs> we I don't know about you but I I love to hear us talk. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> One of the liabilities of radio hosts, yes. <laughs> um, we do have a few seconds I want to just mention very quickly. Um, the... Uh the the um, dinner the banquet that's going to be happening in Fargo for Catholic, for Real Presence Live is February 26th. That's a Monday. Cy Kellett, one of the hosts, a uh, host of Catholic Answers, will be on hand as the keynote speaker. And so please register through. Um, and if you want to meet, meet Father Gross and I, will both be there hosting tables. So indeed. 
Very good. So coming up, uh, great uh, interviews in the next hour. Please stay with us. You're listening to Real Presence Live. (laughs) 